Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with MIT professor Darren Asimoglu. Darren and I talk about his book, Why Nations Fail, whether democracy is good for economic growth, if China will ultimately fail in its present institutional form, as well as what he means by inclusive and extractive institutions and his views on philanthropy. You can get all the show notes and links mentioned by Darren on economicrockstar.com forward slash Darren. That's D-A-R-O-N. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. If you'd like to support the show and become a patron of the Economic Rockstar podcast, please visit patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and in the search bar, type in Economic Rockstar to find out more. Economics was not what I expecting it to be. Uh, it was not about these big picture questions. It was, you know, supply, demand, indifference curves, and so on. But I loved it. I thought this was really cool. I was always into math, and I thought, wow, this, you, know, you can use lots of math here uh, to make social science more rigorous and more quantitative, and that's what I wanted to do. And my interest in these long-term topics remained on the side. Thomas Piketty almost claiming that before his book there was no interest in inequality. I mean, that's absolutely not true. There was a huge interest in labor economics and macro, for instance, about inequality and related topics. When you look at it, other cases of catch-up growth based on extractive institutions all come to an end when the countries in question reach about 45-50% or 40-50% to 40, 40-50% of the GDP per capita of the U.S. So that would be about another decade and a half or so for China. I think you can see a lot of the clues right now in the banking sector, the results of huge amounts of government party-led and government-led allocation of funds, which are inefficient. You can see it in the context of all of these corrupt land development and a very unhealthy relationship between the military, the party, and corporate China. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com. Submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Hi, Frank Comby here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Darren Asimoglu join me today. Hi, Darren. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Darren Asimoglu is the Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. Darren's principal interests are political economy, development economics, economic growth, technology, income and wage inequality, human capital and training, and labor economics. Darren was judged winner of the 2005 John Bates Clark Medal awarded to economists under 40, judged to have made the most significant contribution to economic thought and knowledge. 
His most recent works concentrate on the role of institutions in economic development and political economy. Darren received his MSc in Econometrics and Mathematical Economics and his PhD from the London School of Economics. Darren is co-author of Why Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity and Poverty, which can be found at whynationsfail.com. Darren, um, I'm so honoured to have you on the show. No, thank you. <laughs> Especially for having co-authored such a, a groundbreaking book in terms of being compared to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's a bit of a over-the-top comparison, I think. It's I think it was to... George Akerlof that right. um, I know, I know. George, uh, George, George must have had something in mind, but, uh, you know, nothing, nothing can compete with Adam Smith. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think we were sort of uh, hopeful that the book would sort of touch a nerve <laughs> because we, we feel sort of passionate about the topics and that we discuss in the book, which draw on, you know, more than a decade of work that, you know, James and I have done, but lots of others have also contributed because, you know, the area of political economy and uh, the area of uh, sort of understanding the institutional and historical foundations of long-run economic development have been quite active in the 2000s. So, so we were hoping that it would sort of uh, appeal, you know, beyond economics to other social sciences and to sort of lay readers who I think are somewhat unpredictable, but generally sort of, I think, have uh, have the sense of sort of recognizing big topics as long as they are presented in the right form. So that's what we've sort of attempted to do. Uh, and uh, we were sort of lucky, I think, at the right place at the right time. And are you talking about in terms of the financial crisis? No, not so much so, not so much that. But I think in terms of, yeah, I guess financial crisis too, that might have increased in the interest uh of many readers in in in, in topics of uh, economic relationship, but uh, or more so Thomas Piketty's book Capital. Right. Well, that that came a couple of years after ours, I guess. I forget now. He he must have been published in 2014 or something like that. Ours was published early 2012. Yeah. So actually, you know, we we don't really speak that much to the financial crisis. Our interest is really, you know, what the French historian, Fernand Brodel would call the long durée, the really long-term sort of relationships. And, uh, you know, everybody, sort of many people, I guess not everybody, but many people said, why didn't you have a chapter on the United States? Because, you know, obviously the United States is such an interesting case. There's a lot of uh, political problems that, you know, is quite, are quite visible and inequality, political polarization, all that. But you know, we don't we don't want to be so reactive to sort of events that were just happening. We want we wanted to explain sort of bigger picture things like with this whole host of problems. Why is it that the United States is so much more successful than Latin America, than you know Africa or most of uh, Asia? So, so those were the sort of the questions that were at the center, and we wanted to spend a lot of time on such things as, you know, how industrial, uh, the industrial revolution, got started, how countries and the world as a whole, sort of started experiencing what we called inclusive political institutions that are more representative, more democratic, more constrained in terms of what the rulers can do. 
but also that feature the right sort of capacity of the state to be able to control crime and lawlessness and do the impose the right sort of regulation or unify markets and things like that. So that was the focus which which necessitated to have this sort of far-looking lenses in mind when we were sort of discussing most topics. But, but of course, now that the framework's out there and uh, supporters and detractors, I think one can definitely talk about, you know, what it implies for the U.S., what it implies for Europe, and so on. So the main thesis, correct me if I'm wrong here, the main thesis behind your book, Why Nations Fail, is that those prosperous countries have obviously prospered because of the institutions that they have introduced to make its citizens and people and businesses more inclusive. Yes. And yes. also to give them more freedom to thrive in terms of taking risks regarding yes. business. Exactly. So th- th- more capitalist countries, whereas those countries that fail, like your Latin America, if you want to make a comparison to North America, would be because of the as opposed to inclusive, what would the opposite to inclusive? Extractive. Extractive, extractive institutions. Yeah, that's it. But except that, you know, I do not like using the term capitalist at all. It doesn't appear in the book. And it's a misleading and politically divisive topic. You know, it gets, A, associated with this whole Marxist debate, which, you know, I think is beside the point for most of the things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And second, it doesn't properly distinguish between you know, say Mexico and the United States, you know, in what way is Mexico not capitalist? Is Mexico poor, relatively speaking, because of its capitalism? Or is it not as poor as it would have been because of its capitalism? I think it's totally misleading debate. Was that a very difficult thing for you and James to do in order to be so conscious about not using the word capitalism? No, no, I don't think it's a, it was difficult at all. I don't think it's a not, it's a good term in any case. So I think, you know, sometimes it sort of naturally suggests itself given the historical development of the ideas, you know, when you talk about, oh, you know, industrial revolution and capitalism, but, but it's such an, you know, ugly term in some sense that it sort of puts everything on the sort of the capital, you know, physical capital, and uh, it sort of gives the, creates the impression that markets did not exist before then, or, you know, that uh, that somehow once you have a market economy, you have something good going on. You know, we argue that, of course, markets are the foundation of long-run economic growth, but only if they are undergirded by inclusive institutions. You can have, you know, markets for slaves. You can have markets for stolen goods. You can have markets in which, you know, only the chosen, selected, privileged few people can transact and get all the good jobs or the good contracts. So that's got nothing to do with what we are describing as inclusive institutions. So if I'm sure there are studies out there to try to explain prosperity of countries and we'll put it down to numerous variables like education economic indicators like interest rates and so on well that's sort of yeah that's yeah well that's sort of silly anyway i mean you know how can you try to explain something like the long-run economic interest development of you know something like the united states or the uk you know, with macroeconomic policies. I mean, of course, macroeconomic policies can have some effects and do have some effects. But at the end of the day, they are so, you know, second order relative to the 
big picture institutional framework, whether there is security of property rights, whether there is an environment in which people can enter into businesses and take risks and challenge existing incumbents, whether they can experiment with new technologies, whether there's an educational system that brings the majority of the population on a par with, you know, you know, uh, in order to be able to compete and take partake in economic activities, whether there is a capable state that provides public services that are, that is conducive to economic growth in the long run. All of these things are so much more important than what you, you read about in the financial press or you know, talk shows or, or even, you know, gets discussed in most popular books. And, and, you know, we don't even discuss such topics very much. I mean, we talk much more about what we view as more serious social science thesis about the origins of long-run economic growth. For example, the view that there are some geographic factors about climate or about access to navigable rivers or sea or natural resources or even most seriously about crops or domesticable animals that underpin early development, which then opens the way for late stage, more technology-based development. We talk about cultural hypotheses and we talk about, you know, a general form of what we call sort of uh, sometimes we call ideas, sometimes we call enlightened leadership sort of view, which is that what it comes down to is somehow the choices that are made by the elite in the country, you know, which comes a little bit close to some of these popular accounts, whether on which sort of turns on, you know, whether some key politician or John Maynard Keynes or some other key person has made this choice or that choice. And, and we, we go through each one of these in detail at the early stages of the book in chapter two and sort of try to explain why they are not sort of convincing explanations for long-run economic development and have really no uh, hope of explaining this rich tapestry of very different economic performances that we have observed over the last thousand years. So like I had a student recently that said to me about a, another module that they were studying. Why are we studying political systems when it has nothing to do with economics? Oh, well, you know, I would uh, say that, you know, that question, A, reflects how we have come to teach economics, which is unfortunate. And B, it reflects the fact that the student probably hasn't really read much about, you know, how economic decisions actually get made. For example, and this is, this is the simplest part, you know, we have a large fraction of the economic profession work on topics of public finance, which concern themselves with questions such as finding the optimal tax system or optimal way of intervening is imposing a minimum wage, a good idea or not. And the area of public finance, by and large, is entirely devoid of political economy. This is starting to change a little bit recently, but for traditionally, that's the way it's been. But it then makes two related mistakes. First, it creates the mistaken impression on which thousands of graduate dissertations are written, 
that by looking at optimal policy, you can actually explain the world. There are so many dissertations that go something like this. Consider an environment, then consider the, what the optimal policy would be in that environment, and then try to match that to data, either using some quantitative methods or some estimation, as if the world is explained by optimal policy choices. But of course, this methodology would go entirely wrong. It would give you entirely incorrect views about, uh, you know, information about what the underlying environment is and all sorts of other parameters that you're trying to estimate because actual policy is not made that way. You know, just look at Congress, just look at British Parliament, you know, or much more tellingly, you know, look at, you know, Mugabe, look at Mobutu, you get Zuma today. You know, which one is choosing optimal policies? It's laughable. Second, and more problematic, it actually, or equally problematic, it actually undercuts itself because the, fi the area of public finance is supposed to be about making economics practical, about providing advice on how economic policy should be designed. If you do that by ignoring political constraints, you condemn yourself to irrelevance. So that just is just one example of how understanding the political constraints, how the politics works, what is, what is not acceptable, what are the boundaries that we can push, and what are the disciplines that we should impose on ourselves in order to make the empirical mapping of our models more realistic. Those are really very closely connected to these political questions. But the way that we teach that topic, for example, for you know, lecture after lecture after lecture from undergraduate to graduate, means that students get the impression that politics is entirely relevant because you know, dictatorship, democracy, parliamentary democracy, presidential system, they can all implement these optimal policies. We don't need to think about politics. And then, you know, in my topic of economic development, you know, there are volumes written about economic development that don't mention politics. But if even one-tenth of what we write in Why Nations Fail is true, then political factors are as important, if not more important, than every other single factor that, have been, that has been considered. Especially when we see some countries that, I suppose, have um, dictatorships. And they probably work for some countries, especially if they're benevolent dictators. Yeah, well, I, w I would even challenge that. I don't think there are benevolent dictators. There might be dictators that are interested in certain objectives that happen to be good for certain parts of their population for one reason or another. Lee Kuan Yew, you know, is he a benevolent dictator? No, not really. I mean, you know, if he was a benevolent dictator, why would he throw people in jail for just wanting to raise some critical voices? Why would he not give its population democracy when, you know, a significant fraction of it wanted, despite sort of constant ideological sort of brainwashing that said democracy is bad and a constant repression? But no, I think what he's interested in is not the welfare of his citizens, but he has some objectives in mind, which sort of might intersect with what he thinks is good with, for his people. But then again, one thing we learn in economics is that nobody should decide what is good for us. We are much more capable of deciding what is good for us than any clever person is.
And most of the time, these so-called benevolent dictators are just in it for their own gratification. That might be getting rich. It might be getting powerful. But if we are lucky, they define their own objective as going down in history books as a great leader, in which case they might do things that are not so inimical to economic growth or social and political economic development. But that happens to be very rare. So, for instance, there is this, you know, again, it sort of shows the paucity of research and attention to sort of devoted to these topics in economics, which is supposed to be one of the most empirical disciplines that there is out there. You know, there is this view that democracy is actually not good for uh, economic growth. So there are there are statements after statements from leading economists saying, well, you know, democracy is good for, you know, freedom and certain things and people like it, but it comes at the cost of economic growth. So there's a trade-off between economic development and democracy, or at best, uh, democracy is irrelevant. So a couple of years ago, we said, let's look at this seriously using state-of-the-art techniques and just the best data you can collect. And the data speak very clearly. You know, democracy is actually quite good for economic growth. You know, if a country democratizes, it grows to about 25% higher level of GDP per capita than it would have done otherwise. But somehow this sort of very strong empirical fact has escaped most economists and social commentators. How did you carry out your research? I know Douglas North, he found the term cleometrics. Was it, is it cleometrics or cleometrics? Yes. Cleometrics, I think, yes. Yeah, it's a, basically applying economics and quantitative methods to yes. the study of economic history. Did right. you apply this type of method to it, or was it more observational as well as empirical work? Well, we do we do all sorts. I mean, I'm a theorist by training, so a lot of the early work that I did in this area, together with James Robinson, and some of it by myself or with other co-authors, was you know building theoretical models and then sort of with motivation coming from historical cases and so on. So we did some, you know, especially with James, when we were working on our first set of, you know, substantive political economy papers, which was about democratization, stability of democracies, coups, etc. We did quite a bit of historical case studies going through thick descriptions of democratization in Britain, in Sweden, in France, in Germany, the instability of democracy in Latin America, and so on. But, you know, I, I am also sort of an empirical researcher. I started, you know, early on in my career trying to test some of the labor theories that I was working on doing, you know, empirical work in labor economics. So the second stage was doing econometric work, sort of trying to bring sort of advances in econometrics at the time, you know, in particular thinking more carefully about causality of what is the effect of institutions rather than just correlations to the data. So that that was sort of the second phase, which was, you know, doing careful empirical work. And then, you know, more recently, I've been trying to mix the two, you know, use theory and econometrics together so that we get insights about some theoretically important parameters or aspects that are relevant for political economy and institutional development. I mean, you know, Douglas North's work is really monumental. You know, we have recently lost him. And he not only sort of was instrumental in the development of cleometrics, but he is the person who really reinvigorated institutional economics and put institutions at the center of the economic history literature on long-run economic development. But 
hopefully our work does go quite a bit further than Doug's work in not only thinking about a broader set of issues such as democracy, long-run development, starting from the Neolithic times, but really much more importantly by being more systematic about comparative statics. You know, what are the causal factors theoretically and then empirically that create environments conducive to economic development, conducive to the formation of democracy, conducive to instability and so on. Could you relive or recount the time where you actually transitioned from labour markets into institutions and first discovered with James Robinson that moment that this was something that was quite quite is going to be quite monumental. Well, you know, you never know that something is going to be quite monumental, but you the only way you can do research is by being enthusiastic about it. At least that's for, right for me. You know, I was interested in these issues of long-run economic, social, and political development long before I got into economics. That's what sort of drew me to social sciences when I was in high school. I lived in, uh, you know, I grew up and lived in Turkey at the time, which was under a dictatorship, and I wanted to understand why the political system in Turkey was different from the U.S. or European countries that I was reading about, and whether that was related to its economic problems. And, uh, and, and I thought those sorts of economics politics interactions had to be sort of interesting and first order, really, but I had no sort of tools for thinking about it systematically. But I thought, well, this seems like what economics is about. So I applied and got into study, uh, to, uh, got into to the, to the University of York for studying economics and politics. So I went as an undergraduate from uh, you know, Turkey to the University of York, which was a culture shock to say the least, but you know, that's a topic of another debate, uh, discussion. But it was a, a shock in a different sense because you know, economics was not what I expecting it to be. Uh, it was not about these big picture questions. It was, you know, supply, demand, indifference curves, and so on. But I loved it. I thought this was really cool. I was always into math, and I thought, wow, this, you know, you can use lots of math here uh, to make social science more rigorous and more quantitative, and that's what I wanted to do. And my interest in these long-term topics remain on the side. You know, the politics part is was interesting, but it also wasn't sort of more appealing. It wasn't sort of enough sufficiently appealing to me at the time because it was a lot of, you know, institutional details that didn't sort of, that were a little bit foreign to me, like, you know, the British parliamentary system, the American presidential system. So you had to learn all of these things and write essays. And that didn't sort of appeal to me so much. And economics was sort of exhilarating. So it was so interesting to me that I dropped politics and focused on economics and then, you know, wrote my PhD dissertation. I was still interested in these big picture questions. In fact, I wrote a paper, but I thought nobody in economics was interested in them. But then I met James Robinson and I saw that he was a fellow traveler. You know, he uh, he had gotten his PhD from uh, Yale University, you know, working on sort of macro labor types of topics. 
But he who was an avid reader of history and political science, and he was interested, like I was, in these long-run political questions and their interrelationship on economics, uh, with economics. And I, I thought, oh, well, you know, we could work together. And then we started working together. This was 1993, 1994. And uh, we were, of course, excited about what we were working on. But it wasn't as if we thought this was going to be extremely well received. In fact, I remember that at MIT, when I was coming up for promotion, you know, the advice that I got was, uh, you know, I should focus on the labor and macroeconomic work that I was doing. And this political economy stuff was a bit out of the left field. So nobody knew what it was, what to make of it. But after tenure, I had more freedom. So I had the leeway to focus on it the way that I wanted. I didn't abandon labor or other interests of mine, because first of all, I enjoyed doing them. But secondly, I also thought that things that I was working on in that context, technology, human capital, wage inequality, were also important for the big picture questions that I was interested in. But in any case, so that's when my interests became even more well-defined in political economy. And as a couple of these papers started becoming more influential or more well-known, I think we realized, James and I realized, that perhaps this could be more influential. You've gone from, I'd say, almost like a a micro perspective of economics to more of a macro. Right. But if you look at the prosperity of these nations, what could explain the inequality that exists within a nation? Well, I mean, I think inequality was one of my early passions, and, uh, and I'm still hugely interested in it. And I'm really gratified that there is so much more interest in it. Although, you know, it's, it's, you know, sometimes you read almost Thomas Piketty almost claiming that before his book, there was no interest in inequality. I mean, that's absolutely not true. There was a huge interest in labor economics and macro, for instance, about inequality and related topics. But I think it does require a more holistic approach. You know, our perspective, emphasizing institutions already gives you several important clues about it, you know, because if you have these extractive economic and political institutions, political power is concentrated in the hands of a narrow elite. Economic institutions are created in a way that's tilted in favor of those elites, you know, don't respect the property rights of the rest of the population, don't provide the rest of the population with a level playing ground from which they can participate in economic activity. So that's going to create inequality. And you see many of these extractive systems actually have a lot of inequality. But on the other hand, inequality is not just a measure of whether there is or there isn't extractive economic institutions because technological factors, the availability of different types of skills that are demanded in the marketplace are all contributors to the level of inequality. So what makes the problem of inequality so complicated for the U.S., for instance, is that it's a mixture of these several factors. You know, people like Piketty and some others from the left say, oh, you know, we have inequality in the the U.S. and it's been increasing. And that's all because there's some rent seekers who are able to suck the blood of the rest of the population. And then there are people from the right who say, well, in greater inequality, that's good. That shows how dynamic the U.S. economy is. And both of these perspectives are almost naive in their one-sidedness. There is no doubt in my mind that if you want to understand why there is such high fortunes being made on Wall Street and 
so much inequality coming from Wall Street and the hedge fund industry, you have to think of political factors, of the ability of the people in Wall Street have close connections with the politicians and get uh, assurances from politicians. Or if you want to think about the oil industry, you know, it's very difficult to think without the political factors because they get so much political protection and so on. On the other hand, if you want to think about most of the rest of inequality, it's also quite clear and, you know, volumes and volumes and volumes of labor economics sort of attests to this. A lot of that is about technology, globalization, outsourcing, supply of skills, not keeping up with the types of skills that are being demanded in the market. And even if you look at top 1%, a lot of that is not about rent-seeking. You know, in the top 1%, it's not dominated by financiers or not even, you know, entrepreneurs, the, the, the managers of uh, Fortune 500 firms. Top 1% in the United States is mostly lawyers, doctors, entertainers, Silicon Valley millionaires, other entrepreneurs that have made it big, uh, consultants. You know, most of these people are up there because they have certain skills that are very highly valued in the market and that higher valuation comes because those skills are rare, like those of the entertainers or even some of the lawyers and the doctors, or because the there is a sort of a superstar phenomenon which with the changes in technology those with a slightly higher skills are now commanding much greater share of the market and that's sort of translating into much larger returns and therefore pushing them into the top one percent so unless you bring those two parts together you're going to have a politically driven one-sided view of the inequality issue and you're going to be thrown into sort of facile political sort of uh, solutions to a problem that is much more multifaceted. So in order for a democratic society to thrive or even to have a pluralistic state, should you exploit these ideas and talents and spread them among the whole population of a nation? Or should they concentrate on creating or maintaining this inequality based on the risks that these individuals take and to protect their property rights? I think, you know, the uh, principle of inclusive institutions that we are, we have defined and we defend is that the first thing you have to do is provide opportunities in a very, very broad-based manner. And if you provide, provide opportunities in a very, very broad-based manner, it's not going to be that you want to just defend those with the highest skills at the expense of the rest. You don't want to defend Facebook in the face of new competition or Microsoft. You want to make sure that they get rewarded for what they create, but you also make it very easy for competitors to enter, even in industries such as software or web-based services that have these strong network externalities. It's not that you should punish a top doctor because he's such a skilled surgeon. But you should create an environment in which other doctors can train to be as skilled and strong. What you should punish people for is if you see that they are breaking the laws in order to create an unfair advantage for them. And that's what the Department of Justice does, or that's what the Securities and Exchange Commission is supposed to do, but fails to do in the United States. What are your views on philanthropy? Well, I think it's mixed. You know, I think that the uh, state in an inclusive society 
has a role also for redistribution. I think not that I am a rosy-eyed sort of admirer of Swedish or other Scandinavian societies, but those are strongly inclusive societies in terms of their political systems. I think they have some; they make some important mistakes in terms of their economic systems, but they have broad-based support for creating a safety net that makes sure that everybody lives at a decent living standard. Quite importantly, actually, these societies have been undergoing a lot of increase in inequality, showing that it's not a problem of politics only. It's not a problem of just rent-seeking by a few people in the Anglo-Saxon societies. But it is important that the state does play some of that redistributive role. How much of it? That's a discussion we need to have. What worries me about philanthropy is that it often takes over from the state. In the United States, for instance, we have a situation in which a lot of poverty is not alleviated by local governments or the federal government, and then the Catholic Church plays a huge role. Do I appreciate what the Catholic Church is doing? Sure, of course. But I do worry that some of that should be done by the state. Now, that concern is a little bit harder when it comes, or becomes more complicated, when it comes to sort of international aid. The United States government will never receive support from these voters, you know, just to make huge donations to international causes. So perhaps it's okay that, you know, Bill Gates gives part of his enormous fortune for that purpose. And I do appreciate that, and I think it's important that people use some of those immense fortunes that they make for good causes. But it does raise a lot of issues about, you know, who decides what's a good cause, and how do you make sure that these are still subject to the sorts of checks that we like in an inclusive society? What do I mean by that? So imagine that it was the government giving money to certain causes. Well, it would still be subject to control by courts, Congress, voters, civil society. Well, if it's an individual philanthropist, well, it's not really subject to any checks. So perhaps that individual philanthropist can give all of his or her money to something that's his or her pet project, but it's actually not that good. Imagine a philanthropist giving a huge amount of money so that condoms are discouraged uh, from being used in places that are endemic in HIV. So there are some questions of accountability that need to be asked in the case of philanthropy as well. I'm sure a lot of countries, there's always that giving, that charitable giving Mm -hmm. within to help people that the government say or claim that they don't have the infrastructure, the capital to actually Mm -hmm. maintain services. Right. But by helping or by being charitable or by identifying less equal or less opportunistic situations for people, educating those people could bring about some fortunate circumstances in the future that could help develop a new technology. And we we see it, I suppose, with the ending of segregation in the 1960s. Absolutely, absolutely. We've had so much successes going on as well. Absolutely. But, you know, that was not a philanthropic action. I think there's a huge difference between 
a uh, but it was breaking down barriers, or and it was breaking down to, as you talked about political institutions. Right, it says uh, institutional change driven by civil society. You know, it wasn't driven by the state so much. The state then came to play in a very major role, but in response to civil society, to you know, organizations like uh, NACP and uh, NAACP and uh, other black organizations organizing marches, protests, and, you know, other civil society organizations, both from the South and the North, mobilizing. But that's that's sort of different from one individual or one family coming to dominate a particular area. How important is Schumpeter's theory of creative destruction to your thesis on why nations fail? Because you kind of hinted on it earlier on there a moment ago, that governments or the U.S. government should not protect a certain industry or a company, oh. that they should allow open competition because that's what makes the state healthy. Yes, uh, and thrive. Uh, yes, absolutely, it's central, and we discuss it in uh, we discuss it at length in the book, both in the in the form that Schumpeter himself formulated it, but also we sort of extended it to the political sphere and why. There, there is sort of a need for political creative destruction and how fear of political creative destruction is one of the factors inimical to political change and uh, one of the factors that gets to maintain these extractive institutions. Based on your research, are there one or two main reasons as to why the Roman Empire, the Aztecs, the British Commonwealth or the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire, why did they collapse? Are we likely to see it happen to another country here in the present day? Yes, absolutely. And we discussed that in the book. I mean, the Rome, uh, you know, we talked about how Rome became much more extractive politically and then economically once it transitioned to the empire. Uh, Roman Empire had a political structure that was much more centralized in terms of how political power was held. We discussed Venice which went through a similar transition and from being one of the most inclusive and most, most vibrant places became a much more ossified structure that led to collapse and decline and collapse. You know, Ottoman Empire, you know, that's a different story because it was always a much more extractive place. But we discuss, and this is our theory of extractive growth, why some extractive societies can grow for a while, either because of their military focus or because they are exploiting some existing comparative advantages like sugar in the uh, plantation colonies, or like China today or Russia before it, where because they are mobilizing resources uh, based on frontier technologies that have been developed several decades ago, but so sort of a catch-up growth under a political extractive structure. But all of those, we also explain, cannot last. And uh, so you expect them to decline. You expect them to fall. And that's what's happened in the Roman case, the Ottoman case. And, uh, and that's the basis of our prediction about, you know, that's a pessimistic prediction about China. And you, we can't put a timeline on this, can we, really? Or what, could this be a couple of hundred years? No, several decades, I would say, because, you know, when you look at it, other cases of catch-up growth based on extractive institutions all come to an end when the countries in question reach about 45, 50% or 40 to 40, 40 to 50% of the GDP per capita of the US. So that would be about another decade and a half or so for China or two decades. So, so it's not something we're talking about that's imminent, but, but not several hundred years. 
And I'm sure there are clues all along the way the last number of decades with uh, Tiananmen Square. Absolutely. And some of the Absolutely. protests. And, and I think you can see a lot of the clues right now in the banking sector, the results of huge amounts of government party-led and government-led allocation of funds which are inefficient. You can see it in the context of all of these corrupt land development and a very unhealthy relationship between the military, the party, and corporate China. And with the transition going from a, I, I don't know, how would you describe China? Would it be a, considered a command economy? Well, I don't know. People describe it different ways. Again, yeah. we describe it as extractive growth, a country under extractive political institutions with semi-extractive uh, economic institutions. And could you see that transition then to a more inclusive society or institution? Well, I think that's the, that's the question. Yeah. You know, uh, if they do, then economic growth can last. But in many of these cases, extractive political institutions are strong enough not to make way, even when they become a real barrier to economic growth. Because there are countries, I'm, I'm sure there are some in the Middle East, that haven't succeeded moving from maybe an extractive to more of an inclusive state. Right. I mean, one of the things, again, we emphasize in the book uh, many times is that there is no necessity that a country mm. will transition from extractive to inclusive. I mean, I think that's a, sort of the modernization fallacy that somehow there is a natural arrow that takes you from non-democracy to democracy, from extractive to inclusive, as you get richer or perhaps as the conditions change. I think on the contrary, extractive institutions have great staying power. Mm. 2016 is going to be a big year for Ireland. It's the centenary for the 1916 Rising, mm -hmm. given it's, I suppose, it's the beginning of independence from Britain. And it has been a turbulent time, I suppose, for Ireland because it ex experienced, before this, the Great Famine. And then after the 1916 Rising, we've had uh, decades of poor growth and poverty, too, until we joined the EU or the EEC at that time, and we were given help. Is this the normal transition? I'm sure we're considered more of an inclusive institution now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Ireland is a big success. You know, on the whole, it's quite an inclusive system. Its economy has opened up. It's become much more in line with the good part of the EU standards. It's quite good educationally. Uh, it's a good educated workforce, so that's sort of a sign of... Uh, sort of bringing everybody to a good level, a le level playing field. But it's also very friendly to business, so the right sort of combination. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, people complain that our Irish, the Irish economy does rely on sort of being a tax haven. And I think those are issues that one has to worry about and, and think about. But uh, And we, we had a troika then, as you know, um, the IMF part of this as well. And I'm sure some of the policies have been enforced on... The Irish, as well as other countries that would have been subjected to a bailout mm -hmm. and losing its sovereignty for a while. Well, I mean, I think, I think Ireland, Ireland did reasonably well there. Uh, oh, we did extremely well out of it, yes. And the, the Irish, we went with it, we took the hits and so on. But then we saw huge inequality developing because we had a, perhaps sold off a lot of property that the government would have owned. Right. Or the well, I mean, of course, uh, some of the inequality was already developing during mm. the boom years. So it's hard to know, but yeah. It's, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, so it's hard to know for me. For me. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of quite optimistic about the Irish economy with the little that I know. Yeah. Darren, I, I'd love to know if you have any recommended internet resource. I know I mentioned at the beginning your website, 
whynationsfail.com and you also have great resources on your own yeah. academic page too. Yes, I do. Those are most, more academic resources. I mean, the, whynationsfail.com was also a blog, but we're not sort of upkeeping it anymore. Uh, you know, the older blogs, uh, blog posts are there, but, uh, you know, we did it for about two years, more than two years after the publication of the book, but have run out of steam. So now we're working on our new book, but it won't be for a while. Okay. And is it along the similar team? It is, but focusing much more on the state, what underpins state capacity and why is it that some states are able to develop it and its role and how it uh, shapes economic development and how it's, it is itself determined by political and economic factors. For those of us who would like to read more on the topic that you research on, uh, including your own book, Why Nations Fail, do you have any other books that you'd like to recommend to us? Oh, uh, I should have been ready for that question. <laughs> well, we discussed several new books in our blogs, uh, several books that came out in, the, in 2002, 2000, 2012, 2013, 2014. I would recommend uh, sort of the books that came out recently by Ian Morris, which are sort of uh, not political economy, but about the long-run economic development. They're very entertaining. Not that I agree with all of its claims, but uh, all of their claims. He has two uh, important ones. Uh, also by uh, Joe Henrik about the success of our species that are more of an sort of evolutionary biology perspective on long-run human development. So there are lots of books. I mean, it's hard for me to sort of think about them right, uh, right uh, on the fly right now. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. I interviewed Herbert Gintis. Um, oh, yeah, it's an interesting person. Yeah, it's just uh, touched on what you were just saying there. It's fantastic uh, in, uh, conversation I had with him when he was talking about Homo sapien in terms of the different ideas that economists or socialists have. Yeah. Uh, that we have a totally different perception of what a human would be. In one of your reviews for your book, it's actually on your blog, you mentioned that you cracked a few good jokes within the book. Would that be the case or... Would you like to? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. I wouldn't say that, you know. Uh, a pun, maybe? You know, in a sort of a deadpan, deadpan sort of way, you know. It's not the book. But, you know, we try to be sort of uh, within the academic style, but in a lively way. But, you know, sometimes the topic does call for a little bit of humor, but not too much. You know, we're, we're, we want to, we want compare ourselves to PJ O'Rourke or something like that. Yes, okay, <laughs> Would you like to say anything or leave us with a takeaway before we leave? No, I think this is fine. We've covered a lot of ground. Thanks very much, Frank. Yeah, thanks very much, Darren, for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners again where they can find you. I think the best place is my website, the MIT website, which I don't know the address of, or whynationsfail.com. And you can find all the links to Darren on economicrockstar.com forward slash Darren. That's D-A-R-O-N. Darren, thank you so much for being so generous at your time. You are an economic rockstar. Thank you very much, Frank. Have a good evening. And you too, Darren. Thank you very, very much for taking time out and spending it with me this evening. argue that of course markets are the foundation 
of long-run economic growth, but only if they are undergirded by inclusive institutions.